Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to Byline Radio, or if you're listening on Catch Up, the Byline Times podcast. This time overturning Roe versus Wade, the historic court ruling in 1973 that allowed abortions across the United States. A draft Supreme Court opinion written by Justice Samuel Alito and leaked to the Politico website holds that Roe versus Wade and a subsequent 1992 decision should be overturned. The draft says it is time to heed the Constitution and return the issue of abortion to the people's elected representatives. Now, because it is a draft, it doesn't automatically follow that the law will change. But there are now real fears that the clock will soon be turned backwards on women's right to control their own bodies. Indeed, a number of states have already moved to preempt the Supreme Court. In April, Oklahoma passed a law banning all abortions except in the case of medical emergency. That's due to come into force in August. Arizona and Florida have bills due to come into effect later this year, which would outlaw terminations after 15 weeks even if conception was caused by rape or incest. And you thought The Handmaid's Tale was fiction. President Biden called on the Supreme Court to uphold Roe versus Wade, saying that I believe that a woman's right to choose is fundamental. We shall see. We'll be discussing this with Sean Norris, the Chief Social and European Affairs Reporter for the Byline Times, and Dr. Sonia Adesera, who is an NHS doctor and an, an expert in reproductive health. And we'd love to hear from you as well if you are listening live via the Twitter app at Byline Radio. There's a little microphone in the bottom left-hand corner. So we'll have a, a good discussion for 15 or 20 minutes or so. But if you do want to join in then, just tap the microphone in the bottom left-hand of your screen. To do that, you do have to be listening live on your phone via the Twitter app. And we'll let you join in the conversation if you've got something sensible to add or a question to ask as well. Before we get cracking, though, just a reminder that Byline Radio and the Byline Times podcast are funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times, our wonderful monthly newspaper. It is what the papers don't say. We're all about reporting without fear or favour and telling it like it is. You can find out how to subscribe at our newsbreaking website, bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. Let's bring in uh, Dr. Sonia Adesera then, who is uh, a first-time guest on Byline Radio. Sonia, what did you think when you heard this admittedly draft uh, recommendation from the US Supreme Court? Hi, thanks for having me. Um, it, oh, it was I was devastated when I saw the headlines. I felt my heart thumping. Um, and it's terrifying. I think, you know, for for generations now, women have been fighting for the right for bodily autonomy, fighting for reproductive freedom. And it really is terrifying to see how how quickly um, and how easily that right can be taken away from women. Um, and just the thought that in 2022, in America today, women could be denied the right to have an abortion um, is, is, really, is, is really frightening. And, you know, I think... I think sometimes we don't realise what this means. But when we, when you criminalise abortion and when you bring in legislation to criminalise women or criminalise healthcare providers, you know we've seen now, you know, from countries throughout the world, we've got data from the World Health Organization. When you criminalise abortion, we know that abortion rates do not go down, um, but 
women, particularly women with, you know, poor women, more vulnerable women, women with least economic means, um, ones that can't afford to travel, they are the ones who are then forced to have unsafe abortion um, and putting their health and their lives at risk as a result. And, you know, every year globally, there are 470,000 women who die from having unsafe abortions. So that's, you know, prevent, completely preventable deaths, um, but deaths that's occurring as a result of legislation to criminalise women from having an abortion. Um, and it is, yeah, it's, it's, it's shocking that this is happening today and it's shocking that this right that we had fought for and thought, you know, I think most of us had felt that actually we'd won these rights and it's really shocking to see potentially that, that those rights being taken away from women. And where do you think this drive is coming from? Yeah, so we saw, you know, actually, I remember I, I, I wrote an article about this um, about five years ago now. And I remember writing at the time, people saying, oh, this is hysterical and you're over-exaggerating. But, you know, since the election of Trump, we've seen the emboldening of the um, the far right and anti-choice movement in the US. And we've seen actually that, you know, the that's not just in the US. We've seen that in other countries as well. In other countries as well, particularly when they've elected far right um, politicians. We've seen that in um, in Poland. We've seen it in Brazil. We've seen this um, this these moves to 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 criminalise abortion and restrict women's rights to have to reproductive freedoms. Um, and and that's really frightening. And, and you know, we also we, we see it in the UK as well. Like, you know, today outside abortion clinics, there'll be people who are um, protesting outside the clinics, terrorizing women and terrorizing the doctors that provide abortions, making them feel, you know, ashamed and, and for having the abortion, spreading misinformation about abortion. And we know that many of these anti-choice protesters there, you know, there's been we know now there's research showing that they're receiving a lot of their money and their organizing campaign tactics and the literature is coming from the US. So we're seeing this global spread um, of this anti-choice movement that was emboldened by the election of Trump, who then went on to um, put onto the Supreme Court. We know we knew actually this was happen- This was going to happen. The election of um, judges onto the Supreme Court, who um, it, you know became quite clear that their views on abortion were actually were you know pretty extreme um, and. I think it's also important to say that the majority of people in the UK and in the US, regardless of their personal view on abortion, majority of people support the, a woman's right to choose. So majority of people, and I think it's about over 70% in the US, higher than that in the UK, support that woman having her right to choose what happens to her body, regardless of one's personal views. Um, and this, I think, is what is so outrageous that you've got this small group of people who are um, making this decision that's going to have a massive, huge ramification on women, on their right to choose what happens to their body, on their right to choose what happens in their lives, um, and will put women's lives at risk as a result. And Sean, I know that you have written about the funding of some of these organisations for what are described as pro-choice groups in the United Kingdom and across Europe. I'll come to that in a little while, but just give us a little bit of a background, if you would, to Roe versus Wade. Yes, sure. So Roe versus Wade is the law that came in, in, well, it was a Supreme Court decision from 1973 that decided that abortion was implicitly a constitutional right. And it relied on the idea that it was an, a privacy issue, so that women had a right to abortion because they had a right to privacy and they should be able to have a medical intervention and that should just be decided between the woman and her doctor. I mean, before that, 
abortion had kind of become criminalized in the US in around the 1860s and from then onwards. And it was sort of a state by state issue. And in the 1960s, we started to see um, some states overturn um, bans on abortion. So I think New York was quite an early state to allow safe and legal abortion. But what Roe did was it made it a constitutional right, which means that it doesn't matter what an individual state wanted. It was a nationwide law. So, you know, if individual states could come up with anti-abortion laws, but they would always be superseded by the decision made through Roe versus Wade. And what's going to happen now if this Supreme Court opinion goes through, as is expected, is that it will return to a state level. So every single state can dictate its own abortion laws. Um, and this means that, you know, these there are currently 26 states that have laws ready to go that would ban abortion, some from six weeks into pregnancy, some having total bans, some with exceptions for um, fetal um, defects or for rape and incest. But uh, fundamentally, 26 states could press this sort of red button and ban abortion as soon as this Supreme Court decision is made. And that is going to impact on the lives of millions and millions of US women and girls. And it also just sends a message around the world that women's rights, women's bodily autonomy are up for debate. They're not stable. We don't get to keep them. Men can make decisions that will take those rights away. And I'm looking at a list of some of the states where abortion might be outlawed or either altogether or severely restricted. I mean, some of these provisions, Florida, for example, the exceptions do not allow for abortion past 15 weeks in the case of rape, incest or human trafficking. I mean, it's quite quite horrifying to think that even those situations do not allow an exclusion. I'm always quite wary of talking about exclusions because I believe that women and girls should have a right to abortion, whether whatever the reason for the pregnancy. You know, if if you if you just don't want to be pregnant, if you don't want to have a child, that's a good enough reason to have an abortion. Um, I think when we get sort of bogged down in exceptions and we say, oh, okay, well, it's fine if it's in cases of rape and incest, or it's it's fine in other cases then it sort of ignores the fact that fundamentally women have a right to bodily integrity and we have a right to end an unwanted pregnancy. Um, but obviously these are really emotive issues. And, you know, I think interestingly as well is these kind of time limits. So 15 weeks is just in like three and a half months pregnancy. Um, six weeks, most women won't even realise that they're pregnant at that stage. And what's really concerning is that because of the sort of slow erosion of abortion rights in the US that has been happening since the 1970s and kind of accelerated throughout the 90s and the noughties and the 2010s, is that we've seen closure after closure of abortion clinics. Some states only have one clinic available to women and girls who need an abortion. And if you put in these bans where it's like, oh, you can only have an abortion before 15 weeks or you know, 12 weeks or six weeks, if you can't get to the clinic in that time, if you're if you're not if you don't know you're pregnant, if you uh, you're scared, you might have like various reasons why you're in denial, and then you also have to like think about how you're going to get to the clinic. You might have to take time off work. You might be a you know a college student. It's always this, this 
the clock is ticking, the clock is ticking the whole time. And these these decreases of the upper time limit in sp- in places where abortion access is so limited already is enough, you know, it, it's an effective ban, even if the ban, if the wording of the ban is slightly different. Yeah. Uh, Sonia, you talked about people in the UK terrorising, to use your words, women who are entering abortion clinics uh, for abortions and the people who stand outside and harass them one way or another, maybe by holding up photographs of terminated fetuses, maybe by shouting at them and, and, you know, urging them to, to turn back and so on. Do you think that that movement will be emboldened in this country by what's happening in the United States? Yeah, quite possibly. Um, and we've seen them being emboldened over the past few years, actually, with the rise of the anti, anti-choice movement in the US. Um, and yes, they, you know, I do believe that they are, they are, they are terrorizing women. They're making the women feel um, guilty and ashamed for making that decision. Um, and they also, you know, what really um, angers me is that they spread you know, they just spread dis- things, they spread lies about abortion. If you look at their, I've seen the literature that they're giving to women outside the clinics and they're just, there's things on those, on this just c- completely untrue, um, you know, saying that abortion causes breast cancer and scaring women. Um, so they, and I do think that, and, you know, often if you look into this, the funding of these groups is often quite murky, but there is, you know, it does seem that they're getting a lot of their funding from the US um, and their organizing tactics as well, which is, which is also quite worrying because because in the US, just you know, actually the numbers, their numbers in the UK and the US are, are quite small, but they are well funded and well organised, um, and that's what's really worrying. Um, you know, I think in the UK we've been, there's been, we've, I think you know the Labour Party have been trying to put forward laws to say that actually we should ban this, we should have buffer zones outside abortion clinics um, to stop women to stop these protesters and unfortunately that hasn't that hasn't happened yet but I think that's a really good place to start because it's unfair on women it's also unfair on the healthcare providers who are having to having to face that every day as they do their job. And Sean you've written about this haven't you how dark money that's money that's to say money which is not obviously traceable or identifiable finds its way from these right-wing groups into the United States to to fund so-called pro-life organisations in the UK and Europe. Yeah, I just wanted to pick up as well on what Dr Sonia was saying there, because I've gone undercover in the anti-abortion movement twice. And the first time was with one of those organisations that does stand outside clinics. And, you know, their views are horrendous. Like, you know, I was at this meeting and they said that the reason they had to stand outside abortion clinics and pray is because it would disrupt Satan's power and prevent the abortion from happening. I mean, this is extremist stuff. I've also gone undercover in the kind of crisis pregnancy movement and seen firsthand the disinformation that they share. And, you know, this is, information has been debunked over and over again. The wildest claim that I reported on was that having an abortion would make your partner turn gay, as if, you know, people can be turned gay by anything, let alone a, an abortion. I mean, they're very, very extreme. And I think it could be very easy to not, if you're not looking at these issues and if you're not engaged with it, to not really understand how extremist some of these views are and to kind of brush it off as like, oh, that's just someone's personal beliefs or it's someone's moral position. You know, everyone's allowed to have a personal belief and a moral position, but these, you know, these are kind of embedded in a lot of conspiracist and unpleasant stuff. But yeah, to talk about dark money, um, you know, there's been some really interesting research that has come out in the last couple of years, particularly from the European Parliamentary Forum for Sexual and Reproductive Rights, tracing the money that's come out of the US and into Europe. 
um, what we see is a lot of kind of very wealthy um, foundations in the US um, linked to kind of you know, old school billionaires. So one of the key funders of the anti-abortion movement in the US is the DeVos Family Foundation. People may recognize the name DeVos. You know, this was Betsy DeVos, Trump's education um, secretary, um, you know, who was very influential in kind of rolling back some of the progressive moves to protect women and girls in education. Um, you know, her parents, the Prince Family Foundation, again, a massive funder of anti-abortion movements. And there's links as well to kind of the disaster capitalist billionaires, such as the Koch Foundation. They, you know, these are organizations that have a huge amount of money that fund conservative causes. And one of their big spenders is the anti-abortion movement. And we can kind of see how this money tracks into Europe and into the UK. So, for example, one of the um, major relig so-called religious freedom movements in the US is an organization called Alliance Defending Freedom. And they have offices in London. And, you know, the American office gives a grant every year to the London office. So, you know, it is. But the important thing is, is that what I find really distressing in the kind of dark money to Europe is these are, you know, US organizations meddling with our politics, our rights, our European spaces. And, you know, again, we need to talk about where this influence comes from and what is driving them. These, a lot of these organizations and these funders have links to some, you know, quite crankish you know le i'm gonna say left wing is left field views but obviously right wing views left field right yeah le left field rather than left wing yeah <laughs> yeah, like... yeah 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 and uh, sonia I, I just wonder where the where the pushback is i mean here we're talking about something obviously that's happening in the united states rather than in the uk and Although, you know, we do have very, two very different political cultures and two very different national cultures as well. But the, these have been, these changes have been driven by the Republicans. It's Republican-led states in the United States that are proposing these abortion bans of, of different kinds. It, it, it astonishes me, you know, given that roughly in any society 50% of society is made up of women that there isn't a stronger pushback against these these changes and that you know there isn't a greater anger unless i'm missing something you know i think i think there is a lot of anger against this um there, there are protests happening we've seen it in the us there's been protests happening in london today as well i think there is there is anger and there is fear and yes Look, you know, the UK political system is very different to the US. But even, you know, even in the UK, we have, you know, we've got quite high profile conservative um, Tory politicians who also are, um, you know, anti-abortion. You know, Jeremy Hunt said that he wanted to reduce time limits. Nadine Doris also said that she wanted to reduce time limits. Jacob Rees-Mogg has said that abortion is morally um, reprehensible, despite the fact that he um, has funds in abortion pills. Um, so, you know, there isn't, we are... Yeah, yes, it's a different political system, but we do have um, politicians in the in the UK who also want to restrict um, abortion access. Uh, the second thing to say is that you know in the UK, abortion has never been decriminalised. I think a lot of people don't realise this. You know, abortion has never been decriminalised in this country. You know, what we have with the Abortion Act is that abortion um, has there's been legal exemptions to prosecution. Um, through the Abortion Act. So if you have the abortion under those legal exemptions and you're protected from prosecution, but let's say you are, let's say, for example, you are a migrant woman, you're an undocumented migrant woman who 
can't afford to have an abortion in the UK because you have to pay as a migrant woman to have that. And let's say you bought your pills online from an unlicensed abortion provider. You are then at risk of being put into life imprisonment under our current laws. Um, so, we, you know, the laws in the UK are not great either. Um, and there's many of us, many healthcare professionals, including the BMA, the Royal College of, of Obstetricians and Royal College of Midwives, have been calling for a long time for abortion in the UK to be fully decriminalised and that for it to be regulated like other healthcare procedures. So I think, you know, I think actually, I think this what's happened today will be a shake up for many of us. Um, and I think maybe we've been a bit complacent about this. And actually, we do need to be fighting for our rights and 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 fighting for full decriminalization of abortion um, and ensuring that that right to bodily autonomy is is protected. And uh, Sean, it's worth re uh, reflecting on at this point, I think, that in one part of the United Kingdom, in Northern Ireland, abortions have only been legal since 2019. But there have been complaints that many of the support services that are required to go alongside it have not been provided. Yes. So as um, Sonia was saying there, a lot of people don't realise what the, the abortion laws in the UK look like. You know, um, in 1967, the Abortion Act allowed for abortion in specific circumstances in, you know, Britain, but it was never extended to Northern Ireland. Um, and it was only in, and even up until 2017, if a woman needed an, to come to the mainland Britain to have an abortion from Northern Ireland, she would have to pay, even though she would have been a national, you know, national insurance player, you know, NHS, like you would still have to pay to come and have an abortion in Britain. Um, that got changed in 2017. Um, and then in 2019, finally, um, abortion was legalized in Northern Ireland. And actually, it was decriminalized. So it now has a different status again to the rest of the UK, but in a, in a, you know, almost in the opposite way around. But this huge problem remains that the services have not been commissioned. And actually, Westminster has started to intervene now to demand that services do become commissioned because currently women who are pregnant and don't want to be in Northern Ireland still either have to come to Britain or they can get pills online. But neither is a particularly satisfactory way of dealing with an abortion and you know the law recognizes that abortion is health care that women need to have reproductive health care and so it's really you know what 2022 so the law the bill happened in October 2019 and then I think it was passed in 2020 and yeah two years more than two years down the line there's still not enough there's still not provision but I also think this speaks to a wider issue in the rest of the UK as well in that it's fairly um fairly straightforward to have an abortion in Britain in the sort of early phases of pregnancy. But when you come to like later term abortion, say like post 12 weeks, or, you know, you might have had, um, you know, healthcare issues might come up, or you might need a surgical abortion for various reasons to do with um, emotional or physical health, you know, that can become very difficult. It's not just as simple um, as just what, what getting an wanting an abortion and getting one. There are still issues around access in the rest of the UK too. And I think, again, that's something that gets a little bit lost or a bit ignored or people don't understand or we can be a bit complacent about.
My name's Adrian Goldberg. You're listening to Byline Radio, or if you're listening on Catch Up to the Byline Times podcast. Our guests are Sean Norris, Chief Social Affairs Reporter from the Byline Times. You've just been hearing us speak there. And Dr. Sonia Adesara, who is a, an expert in reproductive health and an NHS doctor to boot. And we're talking about the possible overturning of Roe versus Way, this historical ruling from 1973 in the United States that allowed abortions. If you do want to join in, if you're listening live on your phone via Twitter, via Twitter spaces, then just uh, by all means tap the microphone in the bottom left hand of your phone if you've got a contribution to make or a question to ask and we'll let you into the conversation the more the uh, the more the merrier and particularly keen if we've got i know we always have listeners in the united states if you do want to join in as well uh, before we crack on though just a reminder that the byline radio and byline times podcast are funded by subscriptions to the byline times free and fearless journalism we've got a brilliant monthly newspaper edited by Hardeep Matharu. It's a great read, but by taking out a subscription to the Byline Times, you're also supporting Byline Radio, the podcast, Byline TV, and our news-breaking website as well, bylinetimes.com, and that's where you'll find details of how to subscribe. That's bylinetimes.com. Sean, a few weeks ago, uh, we ran a podcast, I think, talking about the worldwide war on women, which is, well, as having some neat alliteration. Sadly, uh, th- there was some substance to it, we decided, didn't we? It's uh, y- y- People I mentioned in the introduction might reference The Handmaid's Tale, but there are these conservative, with a small c, elements around the world, but especially in a, a nation like the United States that many people look to as a bastion of freedom that seem to be determined to turn the clock back yes absolutely i mean i think i think it's really important to recognize that this is this is a like really terrible day like there's women will die as if this happens that's that's we know that's what happens when abortion bans come in women aren't going to survive this so in poland in january last year they tightened the abortion ban they already had a very strong abortion ban um but they tightened it to ban abortions in cases of um what's known as fetal abnormality or a fetal anomaly and since then at least three women have died like that's the reality of an abortion ban it's not a piece of law. It's not something that's written down in an opinion on the Supreme Court. It's women dying in hospital beds. It's women dying in their own beds because they've taken pills that have caused them harm. It's it's women dying in childbirth of a child that they didn't want to have in the first place. And I'm really, you know, it's been a, a very distressing day kind of thinking all of this stuff through. And also what really worries me is that we, you know, the US is a kind of global leader. It's supposed to be the leader of the free world. I mean, that is a debatable, you know, nomenclature that it gives itself. But I worry that this is going to embolden anti-abortion movements around the world, that it's going to create a situation where people think, well, if they can do it in the US, we can do it anywhere else. And and the impact that that will have on women's lives and girls' lives all over the world is really, really frightening. And yeah, it's hard not to feel a bit despairing, to be honest. It's hard to feel 
any hope. But that said, there is hope because there's resistance and women are organising and women are fighting back. And everywhere where we have seen this backlash against women's rights, be that in Afghanistan in the summer of last year, be that in Poland with the changes to the abortion laws, be it in countries like Slovakia where abortion laws seem to be constantly under threat. Every time this happens, women go out onto the streets, they fight back, they refuse to be silenced and they refuse to have their rights taken away. And I'm just really hopeful that we can continue with that energy in that fight because the the stakes are very, very high. And I, I think we have to take this very, very seriously. Yeah, you do also wonder about the politics of this leak as well, don't you? I mean, uh, the leak has been confirmed ha- as genuine and uh, you, you're never quite sure where leaks come from, whether they're coming from a side that wants to put this into the public arena and perhaps rally opposition to it. We've already seen that with President Biden speaking out unambiguously about a woman's right to choose. So, you know, perhaps the aim was to stir the hornet's nest politically. Perhaps it was put out there by somebody who was keen to show that this is the majority view, the the current state of thinking amongst the Supreme Court judges. So to perhaps soften up public opinion, to accept that this will become the, the change in the law that many Republicans anyway have been waiting for for years. I mean, it's impossible to know where the leak, what's happened with this leak and which side um, it's come from. I mean, the thing that I would say is that it, 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 you know, we've known that this was coming. We've known for a while that this is coming, partly because of the, as I mentioned before, the erosion of abortion rights that have happened over the past decade or past 20 years, partly because we've seen the Supreme Court become stacked with anti-abortion judges and appointments rushed through like Amy Coney Barrett. It was a very quick appointment so that Trump could get an anti-abortion judge in place before the election in 2020. Um you know, I'm sure many of the listeners here will remember the Brett Kavanaugh hearings um, and how painful and difficult those were. But again, it was to try and get this kind of anti-abortion voices on the Supreme Court. And then the big thing, of course, was in December when the Texas law came in. So Texas introduced a ban on abortion very early in pregnancy, but also this kind of so-called vigilante law where anyone who assisted a woman in getting an abortion would be, you know, in a lot of legal trouble. And the Supreme Court didn't intervene. And this was a kind of I remember someone on Twitter saying, wherever you are right now is the moment that Roe versus Wade ended. Because whenever this has happened before, whenever a state has tried to ban abortion before, the Supreme Court has stopped it from happening. So we kind of knew that this was coming, whether it was leaked by the Conservatives who wanted to like, you know, almost do a soft launch, as we say in publishing, um, of um, this this policy, or whether it was leaked by a Liberal to kind of up, uh, create outrage. We, we don't really know, but we do know that this has been on the cards uh, Sonia, I don't know if this is uh, something you feel comfortable talking about, but you know this this kind of broader sense that there are forces in the world seeking to restrict women's rights more generally. You know, Sean referenced uh, women seeking education in Afghanistan, for example, and you know, to progressive people, the idea that women should have autonomy over their bodies is is just kind of just self-evident really but even in our society here in the UK there are people and they will include women who resist that and these bigger forces as well pushing against women's right to self-determination. 
Absolutely. And I think it reminds us that we can't be complacent and we shouldn't assume that there will be progress when it comes to, when it comes to women's rights and human rights. Um, and, we, and we can go backwards. And we've seen that, you know, quite recently in many countries, um, a reversal in human rights. You know, we talk about, yes, Afghanistan. You can look at what happened in Poland with the restriction of abortion rights. If you're looking at what's happened in Russia in recent years, um, in Brazil. So there are many countries across the world, in Philippines as well, in the Queen and all continents we've seen um rights of of human rights and women's rights being being reversed so yeah i think it's it's a really worrying time and i think we can't be complacent about this um and look you know in the uk today you know we talk, we know we're focusing today on women's rights but there are you know the the nationality and borders bill that's been going through parliament you know that's that's a a you know, that's a massive, you know, that's huge. And, and it's and it's going to be passed. And that's think about what that's doing to our right to protest to rights of, of ethnic minorities. Um, so I guess, yeah, I think, you know, we can't, we really can't be complacent. And I think, um, and I think this, this should be a wake up call for us all, that we do need to organise and that actually, these, we need to understand that whether it's women's rights or whether it's rights for um, LGBTQ people or whether it's rights for ethnic minorities or whether it's trans rights, all of these things are connected. And actually, we should be organising together and progressives should be organising together and we shouldn't be complacent. If I could jump in as well, Adrian, I think it's really important to understand that a lot of the organisations or forces that are anti-abortion are also anti-other protections for women. So, for example, there are kind of far-right political groups and religious right political groups who, you know, want to overturn laws protecting women from domestic abuse. You know, these, these things are connected, like this idea that women should have bodily autonomy does not only sit in her right to abortion, it sits in her right to live free from the fear of violence, to live free from things like rape and sexual assault. And I think it's really um, crucial to understand that the attack on abortion is not in its silo. It, it often comes hand in hand with this attack on um, protections for women that keep us safe from rape, domestic abuse and sexual assault. One thing I do just want to pick up, Sean, kind of an interesting comment that you made earlier when I was talking about some of the exclusions that are being proposed in the United States. And I know you said you're, you're uncomfortable really talking about exclusions. Um, in the United Kingdom, or at least certainly in England, Scotland and Wales, because we discussed the uh, the Northern Ireland situation where I think abortion is legal up to 12 weeks and then there's a further extension uh, up to 24 weeks in certain circumstances. In England and Scotland and Wales, you can legally have an abortion up to 24 weeks. How far do you go in your view of autonomy? Do, do you believe that abortion should be legal right up to the point at which birth might be possible? I think it's really important to understand that the vast, vast majority of abortions happen within the first 12 weeks of pregnancy, if not the first 10. I mean, it's it's very rare to have an abortion later than that date. And it's very, very rare to have one post 24 weeks. I mean, when those like later term abortions happen, it's often because, you know, there's um, a you know, fatal fetal abnormality, so that the baby won't survive birth, it's a threat to the mother's life, or there's specific circumstances such as, you know, maybe mental health or um, psychological issues where perhaps a woman has been in denial and hasn't felt able to access reproductive health care. So I think when you look at the figures, you know, it's, it's, it's really 
it, you know, the majority, as I mentioned, the majority of abortions happen very, very early on in pregnancy. And one of the really distressing things about the US debate is it has become completely focused on this lie of what um, the anti-abortion right likes to call the partial birth abortion. And this is the idea that, um, uh, you know, abortions are happening right into the moment of birth. And this isn't true. Like, these are, um, first of all, as I say, if, if an, a woman has a very late time abortion, it's because of some, you know, horrific medical issue. These are women who are losing the baby that they wanted. Um, you know, and the idea that they would come up with this this term partial birth abortion, which is, does not describe the medical intervention that takes place, is really distressing. And we also know from the, the mouths of the religious right. So um, one guy called Robert Anarchis gave a speech to an organization where he talked about how they changed the, the language to partial birth abortion. They moved away from talking about late term abortions part, and just reiterating partial birth, partial birth, partial birth, so that it created this false image in people's minds of what these medical interventions are. And these, again, are medical interventions designed to save a woman's life. They're not designed, you know, they're not as the term makes people think. And so I think, you know, in these kind of questions, it's always good to go back to the data and also go back to the agendas of people that it serves to use this kind of conspiracist language. Sure. Although you'll also understand that there will be people who accept a woman's right to choose, but who will also have a view and, you know, not necessarily a, a bigoted view from the conservative right of, of, of the point at which that is acceptable. I'm just keen to explore you know whether the whether there should be any limit really within the term of a pregnancy i just think because it doesn't really happen that it's not it's such a rare issue mm -hmm. that it doesn't you know and i think that the sort of language around kind of what happens late and later on in pregnancy just often ex it, it like it ignores the reality of what's going on with that woman and that family um so i think it's all, like I say, it's it's the best thing to keep in mind, or well, the important thing to keep in mind is is what the data tells us, but also what those circumstances are. And I yeah, I, I have to if it's a choice between saving a mother's life, then you save the woman's life. Otherwise, the woman dies. Yeah, absolutely. And I can jump in here. I think to you know what we what we should be doing first of all is taking abortion um, and abortion healthcare outside of criminal law. I think that's the first thing that we need to do. Um, and then, and then, secondly, you know, abortion. You know, I completely agree with what what Sean said. Firstly, an abortion is is always a difficult decision for women. No woman will take the, that decision lightly, um, and it should be a decision that happens between between the woman and a healthcare provider, the healthcare professional. Um, and the vast, vast, vast majority of abortions happen very early in pregnancy. There are the the late abortions that happen, the the circumstances in which they happen are very complicated, as Sean said, and it's very rare. But it will be for, let's say, the woman or the or the fetus. There are quite serious medical issues often happening there. So those are those are you know awful situations for the, for those families that are going through that. But I think again, you know, having criminal law around that doesn't help the woman, doesn't help her family. And I think we need to be taking abortion outside criminal law. It should be regulated like other healthcare procedures. Um, and then I think it's a it's something that the woman and the healthcare provider can decide what's best best for that woman. Um, but yes, the vast majority of abortions are early abortions. Um, and 
but there will be there will be situations there will be situations where late abortions do happen um when and and it's and they are they are awful situations and it's often the woman woman's or or the fetus you know the fetus may be not viable or the woman's health is being put at risk by it um and I think you know criminalizing women in this you know it's a ridiculous situation where you could be you know twenty three weeks and and six days or twenty three or twenty three weeks and eight days and then just beyond that point of two days you you are then at you know at, at, you could be could be criminalized yeah um, but it's interesting though that though and I, I suppose you know as I'm asking these questions as a man you know I'm conscious that the the prism through which I view these things is to some extent anyway constructed by the media you know the, if you like the mainstream media the media that we've we've grown up with but it also indicates as well I think the kind of the piecemeal way that the legislation has evolved in England, Scotland and Wales. You know, there has never been a, although there was an Abortion Act in 1967, that had all kinds of caveats and stipulations, which effectively have been ignored in practice, haven't they? And they, they, they've, there's been tinkering with the law. Uh, but you know, we don't have a, a kind of a clear one-off single law that, that covers abortion. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, abortion hasn't been decriminalised. And even, I think, you know, even pre-COVID, actually this has changed quite recently, but pre-COVID, if a woman was to have the abortion pills in her own home rather than on the licensed premises, then she could be at risk of life imprisonment. So that's, you know, that was what the law is in this country. Now, recently there's been a change to legislation with the Healthcare Act that allows women to have the abortion pill that's been given by by the abortion provider to have that abortion pill in her own home. Um, but that's, you know, that's the ridiculousness. And, and let's say, let's say you are a, a maybe you are a 16-year-old girl who is too afraid to go to an abortion provider, orders pills online from, let's say, you know, a, um, from a, from an unlicensed provider, that, that, Again, that girl could be could be prosecuted and could face life imprisonment, and that's in England today. So that's why you know it's just we need to we need to. It's really important, and I think you know if, if there are people listening on this call and thinking what can we what should we be doing in England, we should be fighting to ensure that to decriminalise abortion, and that's what women have been calling for, and that's what the healthcare providers have been calling for for many years. Take abortion outside of criminal law, um, and then respect women's right to decide what happens to their bodies, and just give them, you know, these these laws. I think are just so, you know, they're so out of date and paternalistic, um, and and it's not fit for the for, for for how we provide abortion care currently. And and they are. Paternalistic. I mean, the, the root of that Latin word, you know, that they are laws designed by men, aren't they? And and still predominantly governed by men. I, th I think, I mean, the, the idea that we would decriminalise abortion entirely in terms of mainstream political parties is still quite a radical idea, isn't it? Is, is there any of the, is there any party which subscribes to decriminalising abortion in the UK? Yeah, Labour. Labour does. Do they? Do they? Diana, it, well, Diana Johnson has been fighting for this for a really long time. I mean, I was um, in the House when she introduced um, a 10-minute bill about it in 2018. I mean, it's, it's got a lot of support. And, you know, like Sonia mentioned then about the kind of abortion pill issue. And, you know, this, this was, 
this was a change that came in in March 2020 to help create room in the NHS so that women weren't having to go to their GPs or clinics to have their abortion pills. But then the government were going to U-turn on that. They just it, and in March they announced that they were going to cancel the telemedicine um, policy, and it was only because of pro-choice, pro-abortion MPs and um, peers in the House of Lords forcing a vote in the Commons that we actually got to keep the telemedicine provision. And it was a narrow vote. I mean, it was 188 MPs voted against um, this this telemedicine provision that had helped so many women have safe and legal access to abortion. Yes, uh, I'm just looking at. Uh, I think Jeremy Corbyn promised to review the question of whether abortion should be decriminalised. Is it your understanding that it is Labour Party policy now under Keir Starmer? Um, I'm not sure if it's policy, Mm. um, but I know that there's a lot of Labour women MPs that have been advocating for it and introducing 10-minute bills. In fact, I'm looking here, uh, forgive me, I should have known this before we started, uh, both uh, Labour and the Lib Dems in their last manifestos uh, promised to decriminalise abortion. So it's interesting, actually, that that hasn't become a major political battleground uh, in the UK, although... Uh, I imagine in in light of this Roe v. Wade decision or draft decision in the United States, be careful, it's not a decision yet. Uh, I do wonder if that will be wheeled out uh, as part of the culture wars again. It's, it's kind of there's a natural fit between the, the UK's culture wars and and this kind of issue. I think. I mean, I think as um, Sonia said at the beginning of the the show, you know, I. I there, there is a, a temptation to, to think that this could fall into a cultural issue. But we have to remember that abortion does have mainstream support in the UK. The majority of people support a woman's right to choose. Every societal attitude survey that comes out supports a woman's right to choose. And so I think they would struggle to make this a cultural issue. It's not impossible. They've made a lot of things cultural issues that I wouldn't have expected. But I think, you know, ultimately people care about women's health. They care about privacy. They care about dignity. And I think that kind of old fashioned, you know, sense of, oh, that's just not done. That's not how we do things. We keep our noses out of other people's business. That makes it harder for abortion to become a cultural issue. The reason it can in the States, I think, is because there is such a much, much stronger evangelical right that has been advocating for these bans since 1973, like since the day it was legalised. And we've seen those kind of huge evangelicist movements, men like Jerry Falwell, men like Franklin Graham and his son Billy Graham, you know, these big figures who have a huge amount of influence constantly banging on and on about abortion. And we've seen a lot more anti-abortion violence in the US than we've seen in the UK from, you know, bomb bomb attacks on clinics to abortion doctors being assassinated. This is, you know, the, the kind of that sort of evangelical mixed with conservative poli- politics mixed with a, a, a healthy dose of white supremacy in the US has allowed this to become such a huge cultural issue. And we just don't have those same dynamics in the UK. We do have an anti-abortion movement. We do have prominent anti-abortion MPs, but we have a huge amount of popular support for abortion rights and women's health care. It is a weird thing, though, Sonia. I mean, in, in the United States, and backing up something you said earlier, I've found a, a poll conducted for CNN in January of this year, so just a few months ago, showing that 69% of Americans backed Roe, backed the right to abortion. So in in any other 
field really if you've got more than two-thirds of the population and of course we you know we have to put in the necessary kind of caution around opinion polls but it was carried out conducted for cnn which is a respected news organization if two out of three people support any particular measure really it's not generally controversial is it and yet here we have a, a, a relatively small number of people being able to it would seem twist the the democracy of this leading nation in the world this bastion of freedom and democracy which which isn't acting apparently in accordance with the democratic will of its people absolutely you know a tiny a tiny minority of people um trying to remove the rights of women um, in the America. And, but look, also, let's remember, I think you, we haven't touched on this yet, but when Trump came into power, he brought in the global, glag, global gag order, um, which, you know, I'm sure many of you know, many of you have heard of. But if you haven't, what, what it did is that it was it stopped, prevented the US from um, providing any funding to any healthcare providers globally that provide that gave that, that gave advice on abortion or provided abortion or gave advice on contraception. So with that order, and you know, US is one of the largest providers of of, um, of global healthcare. So with that order, we saw you know funding being stripped from healthcare providers across the world. You know, so healthcare, let's say in 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 Asia and Africa any healthcare facilities that gave advice on contraception or gave advice on abortion, they saw their funding funding stripped. And to maintain that funding, they had to stop providing abortion or stop providing advice on contraception. So this does have, you know, these, this, yes, it is a minority of people, but this minority of people can have a massive, massive impact um, on women and particularly poor and vulnerable women across the world. And it already has done um, and set to get worse, of course, if this, if this, if this happens and if Roe versus Wade is reversed. I think we're coming towards uh, a natural conclusion to our uh, to our Twitter spaces tonight. It's been a really fascinating conversation. And we ought to stress, as I have done more than once, that although this is a draft uh, from the Supreme Court in the United States, it does not follow that this will become a change in the law in the United States. And President Joe Biden has already indicated his opposition to it, although it strikes me as an odd thing. Sean, that, you know, here we have what is supposed to be a judicial process, but we know that the appointment of these Supreme Court judges in the United States is itself a heavily politicised act. And now we have a president telling the judges what he thinks should happen. Again, we talk about the bastion of democracy. Something feels pretty wonky about all that. It's bizarre. <laughs> like, I find the system bizarre. It's very different to the UK system, I guess, is, is part of the issue. But I think it's also, when you look at the draft um, decision, they're making claims that this is about restoring democracy because it's about restoring um, the state-by-state -state system so that everyone can vote for their state legislators. And if their legislators then want to ban abortion, well, that's what you voted for and it shouldn't be something that's out of the hands of the state. But the fact that they're kind of making this claim that it's for democracy well, you know, these elect, non -elect, these judges who are nominated um, by the president at certain points in the cycle, you know, it's just, it, it, it just doesn't make any sense. And 
And I think the other thing is, like I mentioned, they, they talk a lot about how this is going to put power back into the state legislations. But when you look at the makeup of the majority of the states that want to ban abortion, you know, we are seeing very, very male dominated state legislators like he, like the, the number of women lawmakers, I think, in the, I can't remember which state was 11 percent. So again, we're having men making decisions about women's lives and women's bodies and women's futures. And, and this is supposed to be democracy. Mentioned Joe Biden uh, a little bit earlier on. He issued a statement earlier at that stage. He says, we don't know whether this draft is genuine or whether it reflects the final decision of the court. Well, we do know that the draft is genuine, but it doesn't yet reflect the final decision of the court. And he says, with that critical caveat, I want to be clear on three points about the cases before the Supreme Court. First, my administration argued strongly before the court in defence of Roe versus Wade. We said, that Roe is based on a long line of precedent recognising the 14th Amendment's concept of personal liberty against government interference with intensely personal decisions. I believe that a woman's right to choose is fundamental. Roe has been the law of the land for almost 50 years and basic fairness and the stability of our law demand that it not be overturned. Second, shortly after the enactment of Texas law SB8 and other laws restricting women's reproductive rights, I directed my Gender Policy Council and White House Council's office to prepare options for an administration response to the continued attack on abortion and reproductive rights under a variety of possible outcomes in the cases pending before the Supreme Court. We will be ready when any ruling is issued. Third, if the court does overturn Roe, it will fall on our nation's elected officials at all levels of government to protect a woman's right to choose, and it will fall on voters to elect pro-choice officials this November at the federal level. We would need more pro-choice senators and a pro-choice majority in the House to adopt legislation that codifies Roe, which I will work to pass and sign into law. So pretty uh, uncompromising stuff, I'd say, from uh, President Biden. Omar has joined us, uh, I think, from the United States. Hello, Omar. Welcome. Hello there, Adrian. Thank you very much indeed for having this forum. And uh, to Sean and uh, Dr. Adesara, thank you very much for your uh, insights on what you've provided to really appreciate what you both had to say. I am absolutely terrified about what has happened here in the United States. And I can tell you that I'm going to do everything I can voting wise and everything else wise to galvanize people that I know to vote in the midterms here in the United States. But also we've got an election coming up in my native country, the UK, this coming Thursday. And I do believe, and I think Sean mentioned this before, Labour, or someone mentioned this before, um, they support the decriminalization uh, of, of abortion. I think we all need to be galvanized by this. This really affects all of us. It certainly affects women first and foremost. I think men have to speak up and speak out and uh, also get focused and get active and really start to become really activistic on, on these issues because these issues affect all of us. And here in the United States, this, I think, and again, I think Sean mentioned this, this has been in the making now for 50 years, ever since Roe versus Wade was decided in, by the Supreme Court in 1973. Uh, what we need to do now, because I think this is the beginning of what's going to be happening in the United States, as horrendous as this is, this is going to be now a chipping away at all the personal and privacy rights, a, wo a woman's autonomy, 
It's going to be then about the bedroom. It's going to then be about uh, LGBTQ persons' rights to marry. It's going to be about all these things. And before you know it, um, it will be everything. Uh, the Republicans and the Federalist Society have brought us this moment. And so the final thing I want to say is men out there in particular, it's time to get active. It's time to get involved. This affects us all. It affects families. It affects women. It affects all of us. And we must be vigilant and we must get to the polls and vote because this is terrifying. It really, really is. Today, my heart sank. And I can say one last thing, Adrian, and thank you for your time. Um, during those Supreme Court arguments of the case, which is Dobbs versus Jackson Women's uh, Health Organization, and I will be retweeting the 98-page uh, draft that Justice Alito did. During those hearings, those Supreme Court oral arguments in December of last year, um, you could just tell where those justices on the right wing were going, just by the way they were questioning uh, the attorneys who were trying to um, stand up for the Jackson Women's Health Organization. So we must be vigilant. I want to thank uh, Sean and Dr. Adesara for their, for their comments and what they've had to say. I really appreciate it. Men, we have to get active. We've got to get out there and get going and get voting. And Adrian, thank you once again. Well, Omar, not so quick. I'll I, I tell you what, I think what, what's kind of quite fascinating and disturbing is that so many of the positive certainties with which I grew up seem to be being eroded. So uh, I would never... You know, pretend as a as a white man, you know that racism had ever been eliminated, or you know would had been anywhere near wiped out. But there was a sense I had, I, I felt a sense as I was growing up, comforted myself perhaps foolishly with a sense that that things were getting better. And as we saw with the death of George Floyd and the whole Black Lives Matter movement, which sprang from it, clearly many historical and underlying grievances had not been addressed and still haven't been addressed and need to be addressed. Absolutely. Absolutely. And now, and, and now sorry, Emma, and, and now we, we have, the, you know, the, the, the assumption, the understanding that at least to a limited extent, women had the right to control their own bodies. And th th that was just the way things were and the way things are may not be the way things will be. That's, that's quite a jolt. It is a jolt, but he, here's the and here's the thing to accompany the the points you've just made, Adrian, uh, and I think it underlines the point that I was just making just before you spoke, is that we cannot rest here. I think one of the things, not that we did rest, because there are lots of people who have been uh, activists to try to preserve this right of women to have their own autonomy and bodily autonomy for, for decades. But I, I, this is more about the rest of us who aren't doing enough or who aren't involved in this. We cannot rest on our laurels because every victory that we attain is going to be answered by this small coterie of men who hold all this power and who are misogynistic and who want a uh, male minority rule over all the rest of us and we cannot let up whether it's with racism whether it's with um the assault on lgbtq communities whether it's anything else whether it's women's autonomy so i think to just to, to really uh, amplify the point that you're making is that the, uh, the lesson for us is is we must continue to stay active and focused because this is a moment 
that uh, I'm telling you, if this doesn't send a chill down people's spines, nothing will. And we have to stay active and must stay focused and vigilant and make sure that we are not silent on this. And I'm speaking specifically to a lot of men out here because this is going to be our fight. It's our fight as much as it is a woman's fight. Omar, thank you. And I suppose, Sean, it does point to the kind of progressive forces needing to galvanise in a way that the conservative right has galvanised and clearly galvanised very effectively across the Western world. Yes, absolutely. I mean, we need to move forward with this. We need to be fighting back as a movement. Um, I think what Omar said about men stepping up is also really important. Don't let this be done in your name, really. And I think if if something gives me hope, like I mentioned before, things like the women's strike, those movements coming up and being so vocal. But one area that does give me a huge amount of hope was the Together for Yes movement in 2018 in Ireland which um, ended the ban of abortion that was introduced by the Eighth Amendment in the 80s. And what we saw with the Together for Yes movement was different factions of the feminist movement, different factions of all sorts of progressive politics coming together and fighting towards a specific goal. And, you know, men were involved in that movement. Men, men sort of knew when to step back to let women speak, to let women tell their stories, but also to, you know, hold women up and, and stand in solidarity and stand in um, stand by the sides of women who were speaking. So we, we know that it can be done. Ireland gives us this really positive example of what solidarity and single-minded campaigning can achieve. So yeah, we, we're always going to have our differences politically in progressive movements. That's, that's one thing that makes us good because we debate and we, you know, argue and, and hopefully improve. But sometimes we do need to stand together and stand in solidarity and fight back as one. Sonia, this does feel like a moment, doesn't it? Yeah, I hope so. Um, and you know, and I, I agree with Sean. This, I, this, that we need to get organised, um, and we need to be fighting back, and we need to be showing solidarity to people across the world with similar fights. And yes, we need to. I guess that's an awful thing to say, but learn from from the right and how they how they organise and how they work together and support each other. We need to on the left and on the progressive left need to organise and we need to work together um, and demand our rights. And that's women's rights, LGBTQ rights, trans rights, rights for racialized minorities. These are all part of the same fight. Um, so we do need to support each other and organise together. Sonia, really appreciate your time tonight. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, that's Dr. Sonia Adasara, who's been joining us, expert in reproductive health and an NHS doctor as well. Uh, thanks also to Sean Norris, Chief Social Affairs Reporter of the Byline Times. But of course, as always, most of all, thank you to you for tuning in. It is much appreciated. And whether you've enjoyed listening to this live at Byline Times or on listen again via the byline times podcast please do spread the word via social media we're a small organization we don't have a huge budget so anything you can do in marketing terms to spread the word and let people know that we exist we'd be really grateful and just to explain as well byline radio appears maybe three or four times a week on a bit of an ad hoc basis because one of the joys of being able to use twitter spaces is that we're not beholden to anybody else's news agenda when there's something to say when there's something to to debate and discuss we like to think we debate and discuss it when there is not anything particular to say we don't so do follow us on twitter 
at Byline Radio. That's at Byline Radio, just to keep track of when we're going to be live. Or as I say, we'll always be available on Catch Up to listen again through the Byline Times podcast. And please as well, if you want to support our work, do think about taking out a subscription or even a membership to the Byline Times. You'll get our brilliant monthly newspaper in return and you'll be supporting Byline Radio and the Byline Times podcast. Get more details on subscriptions at bylinetimes.com. Thanks very much indeed for listening. We'll see you again very soon. Thank you and goodbye. Cheers.